following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. This morning I want to start off our time together by asking you to engage your minds a little bit. I'm going to ask you to think a little bit, and I'm going to have you envision some different items that I'm going to give you some particulars for. I'm going to describe them to you, and these are rather common, well-known items, so I trust that it won't be, uh, you know, there won't be too many blank stares, there won't be too many, oh no, what am I going to think of types of things. Uh, you know, the beauty of this exercise, though, and this is the beauty of it, is there are no wrong answers. So it's kind of like the common core curriculum, right, that we are, are rolling out. Uh, I'm sorry, did I just say that? I, I don't know what happened. It just slipped. I, no, no, there, there really are some wrong answers here. If what you are thinking about is not... Uh, in line with the criteria that I gave you. So there, there are wrong answers, but the beauty is nobody's going to know it but you. So I've, I've probably kind of already made this way more complicated than it needs to be. So let's just go ahead and get started so that you can begin to just see how easy this is really going to be. All right. Now, what I want you to do right now is I want you to imagine in your mind a house. All right. Some of you are thinking about lunch right now. Just a house. All right. I want you to Im- imagine a house And this house must have at least one door, at least one window, and a roof that covers it. All right, so think of a house. This house has to have at least one door, at least one window, and a roof that covers it. Does your house look like... I hope it doesn't look like it. Oh, that's the wrong one. Now, okay, well, I don't know what happened. There it is. Modern technology is a beautiful thing. Now, does your house look like that? Yeah. Who said yes? Come on. Come on now. Be truthful. All right. Now, here's again. If the house you're thinking about doesn't look exactly like this one, if you didn't have this elaborate tree house laid out in your minds, uh, don't worry about it, because you know what? You, you had an acceptable house as long as it had one door, one window, and a roof that covers it. You had an acceptable house. All right, now next, I want you to imagine in your mind a bicycle. <laughs> not the one. Not the one you saw earlier. <laughs> a different bicycle than that one. <laughs> This bicycle has to have two wheels, two pedals, and some kind of a steering means to steer it so that you don't run into that person in your mind as you're riding your bike. So think about your bicycle, and I'm sorry if you couldn't get this out of your head. How many of your bicycles look like this one? (laughs) All right. So there we have it. Now, now again, if your bicycle didn't look like this and you'd actually followed what I told you to do and you blocked this one out, you know, don't worry about it because, again, you have to ask yourself, did your bicycle have two wheels, two pedals, and a means of steering it around? If so, congratulations, you have an acceptable bicycle. All right, last one. Hang in there with me. You're doing great. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind... I don't know why I always come back to superheroes, but I just like superheroes. So I want you to imagine in your mind a a superhero. Now, the superhero must have a cape, an alter ego, and they have to live or work in the city. All right, so this one's a little harder, so I'm going to give you a minute here. Superhero's got to have a cape, an alter ego, and live or work in the city. Now, how many of you had a superhero that looked like this? <laughs> Did you have underdog? All right. Well, if you didn't, have no fear. Underdog is here. <laughs> I don't know if you guys would get that one, but that's a, oh, that's a great line from underdog. All right. Now, now, again, let's come back to the criteria that I gave you 
Did your superhero have a cape, an alter ego, and live or work in the city? If so, then again, rest in the fact that you have an acceptable superhero. Now, I share all of this with you today because I want you to understand that everything doesn't need to look the same in order for it to be acceptable. It might need to meet certain criteria, but meeting those criteria does not mean that it needs to be identical in appearance. And we saw this as we considered a house. We saw this as we considered a bike and a superhero. But what about if you and I were to apply the same concept to the church? And again, not to the varying external structures, you know, what we see outside of the church, but rather to the ministries, and to the functions that are taking place within each individual community of of believers. I want you, if you would, and again, I don't have a picture for you to come back to, but I just want you in your minds to picture a church. And these are the criteria that your church needs to have. This church in your mind needs to exalt God. It needs to edify believers. And it needs to evangelize the lost. Okay, it needs to exalt God, it needs to edify believers, and it needs to evangelize the lost. Now, these three elements really, if you stop and think about it, define the purpose of the church. And the elders of Calvary Bible Church have sought the scriptures. We've continued to come back and search the scriptures and say, okay, what is it that the scriptures say a church should be all about? What is it that kind of defines the church moving forward? What should a church do? What should it look like? And these are the three elements that we came up with. And we thought that these three elements really need to influence and direct every ministry, every program that we have to offer here at Calvary Bible Church. This is kind of the grid that we kind of look everything through. Does it, does it exalt God? Does it edify believers? Does it evangelize the lost? This is what we try to make every ministry kind of go through and, and evaluate it from there. And yet, if you stop and think about that, these three elements by no means give us a set, established list to offer. Instead, they help us to make sure that the ministries we do uh, offer are fulfilling their purpose. And rather than look at how these three elements impact every ministry at Calvary this morning, I want to help you to see how they have impacted the children and student ministries here at Calvary Bible Church. In particular how we do Sunday mornings, in particular Sunday school, as we're going to kind of call it. We're going to look at it from a children's and youth or student ministries perspective. So with that, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a great God, and we thank you that we could all gather together in this one service and just uh, come and look at your word and, and just see what it has to say. And Lord, I I pray that as we move forward, that you will help us all to have a a better grasp, a better understanding of how a church is to function, how its various ministries are to function. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us all to understand why we do what we do here. Lord, that uh, there is a lot of flexibility on what we can do, but may we always come back to these three things. And may you just bless the time that we have together this morning and use it. Lord, in each of our lives to help us to be people that honor you and bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. All right. Now, I think if we're going to go forward, we're going to have to kind of of start laying some groundwork for children's and student ministries by looking to the scriptures. Now, you know, I don't know if Tim just decided to get out of town on this, because, you know, it's not like I can come to one particular passage and I can say, look, here is the passage that shows you why we have Sunday school. This is why we have children's ministry. This is why we have youth ministry. There's not like that one passage that I can come to you and and show, you know, maybe there was some thought into the process of let's do a one service and kind of do this because that way they'll all have their kids in here and they'll be ready to kind of send them off and, and be appreciative of the fact that we do have these other types of things. Maybe what we should have done is just pulled back even from infancy on up through the four-year-olds and that way to really change the dynamic in here. But, you know, I think there's not a passage that we can kind of go to that is going to state this is the one that says clearly we are to have Sunday school for children. We are to have programs for our youth. 
But I trust that by the time we're through, we'll each kind of see how God's word validates and supports children and youth ministries. And that points people to Jesus Christ. So for starters, let's look at how Jesus dealt with children. Turn with me if you have your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we are going to look at verses 13 through 16. We're just going to kind of take a look and just kind of see, okay, did Jesus care about kids? Was there anything kind of that, that jumps out as we look at that? So in our passage, Luke, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, let me just kind of give you a little background leading up to it. I mean, leading up to this, we find Jesus teaching some Pharisees. And, you know, the Pharisees are doing what Pharisees do. They're asking some questions, uh, but they're really not listening. They're really just kind of trying to just expand their own thoughts, their own ideas, validate their own thoughts, their own ideas. And and that's kind of what's happening right now as Jesus is is talking with the Pharisees. And shortly after that, we see a a little change in the scene and that we find Jesus and his disciples talking about the same subject, which is, is divorce inside of a house. And then in verses 13 through 16, we find these precious words describing Jesus Christ and what happens next. It says this, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. What makes Jesus' dealings with these children so amazing is the fact that children were not very highly esteemed back in the ancient Jewish society, at least not in the sense of uh, being paid much attention to. Sure, they were loved within their families, but uh, they they really weren't regarded as able to contribute much or being worthy of much from uh, anything outside of the family. So whereas in our day and age, you know, this would have, this type of interaction with kids uh, might have really helped build somebody's image. I mean, you know, you see politicians, they see a little baby and they just, you know, they want to kind of take that photo opportunity. They want to take that baby and give it a, give it a little kiss just because, look, I'm, I'm a family man. I, I, I'm, I'm for the kids even. But that would not have been the case in, in Jesus's day. Again, children weren't looked at in, in, in that same light. In fact, this would have been something that might have set a case for Jesus back in, in the eyes of the Pharisees and anybody else around. As one commentator puts it, childhood was typically regarded as an unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood. Children, for the most part, were insignificant in that they added nothing, nothing to their family's bottom line. Their lack of contribution rendered them in a lot of ways voiceless, and their vulnerability made them susceptible to all kinds of great atrocities, and we see this all throughout history. But this wasn't the case with Jesus. This wasn't his view of children. He had an entirely different view, and while the disciples' rebukes would have been totally in line and totally understandable and acceptable for that day, they were not in line with the one that they had set out to follow. And we're told that Jesus became in indignant with them indignant he was very much displeased he was very angry and upset that they would try to hinder the children from coming to him from them being brought to him again indignant this is how jesus viewed these children coming to him his great displeasure his great displeasure offers us a glimpse into the care and the concern that our wonderful, beautiful Savior has for the vulnerable and the powerless. You see, the disciples thought that their discussion about divorce, about adult things, was much more important than the blessing of of children. In their minds, Jesus was for them. Jesus was there to kind of deal with the adult stuff, to give them guidance and direction on the adult stuff. He didn't need to concern himself with a bunch of children that really couldn't think at their level, couldn't interact at their level. 
You know, Charles Spurgeon helps to drive the point home when he writes this. He says, to put the thoughts of the apostles into one or two words, they thought that the children must not come to Christ because they were not like themselves. They were not men and women. A child not big enough, tall enough, grown enough, great enough to be blessed by Jesus. So they have thought. The child must not come to the master because he is not like the man. How the blessed Savior turns the tables and says, Say not, the child may not come till he is like a man, but know that you cannot come till you are like him. It is no difficulty in the child's way that he is not like you. The difficulty is with you, that you are not like the child, end quote. And then Jesus takes the children in his arms and he blesses them. He doesn't cast them off as being unworthy. He doesn't write them off as being undeserving of his time. He shows them love and he holds them up as an example of what you and I, what us adults must be if we are to enter into God's kingdom. Like them, we must never come in our own strength, in our own righteousness. But like them, we must come in complete and utter dependence. You see, Jesus truly loved children. And this is evidenced by his taking them up in his arms and blessing them. But he also showed this love and compassion for them in in some rather unique ways. And in fact, in three instances, we're told of Jesus's healing of children. There was the official's son in John 4, 43 through 53. There was the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who happened to be demon-possessed in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And there was the demon-possessed boy with epilepsy that we see in Matthew 17, 14 through 21. In addition to that, he raised Jairus's 12-year-old daughter from the dead in Matthew 9, 18 through 26. There was also the woman's son from Nain, Luke 7, 11 through 17. But he appears to have been a little, a little older in that Jesus calls him a young man. But without question, Jesus didn't shy away from ministering to many children, to many sons and daughters of love and compassion. He shows this to them. This is how Jesus thought of children. He gave of his time. And he did great things in and through their lives. You know, the Bible in both the Old and New Testament passages help us to see both the necessity and the value of teaching children. Here are just a few to ponder and consider. And again, you don't need to worry about turning there. Just, just take them in and be assured that, that, that there are many more. This is just a, a quick little sampling. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 says this. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And finally, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says this, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, some of you might be sitting out there thinking to yourself, you know, all of those verses that he just quoted don't have anything to do with Sunday school. You know, because these you know, these, these verses, they pertain to, to parents and to their children. And we see a lot of that, that command coming to the, to the parents to train up their children. And to one degree, I, I would say that you are absolutely right. But on the other, I would say that they are still stressing the necessity and the value of teaching children. You see, children aren't to be 
put off to the side. Our youth isn't to be set aside because they're not like us. They're not fully developed adults yet. See, they still have a place in God's kingdom. They still have value in God's economy. And therefore, they are worthy of being reached out to and ministered to. I mean, if I could just get on my soapbox for a moment or two, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here and offer a few words to you parents. Faith is not a skill that can be learned as your child sits at the feet of some religious professional. God has not called the church or the Christian school to train up a child in the way he should go. Instead, he has given you, parent, the privilege to do just that, to fulfill this great and high calling. And while the church should be a resource to assist, to assist you in this endeavor, make no mistake about it. You, parent, are the one who will someday stand before the Lord and give an account for how you did in the training up of your children. Martin Luther had this to say about the role parents are to play in the training up of their, their children. He says, most certainly father and mother are apostles, bishops, and priests to their children. For it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel. So let me ask you, does this describe your home? Do you see your role as that of being an apostle, a bishop, and a priest? Or is that something that you've sought to kind of relegate to the church? Or maybe you've sought to kind of hand that off to the Christian school and say, you know what, I've done my job. I got them in a Christian school. I bring them to church every Sunday. What more do I need to do? You know, you and I live in a day and age where it has become commonplace for parents to take their children to the experts for training. I mean, for example, I don't know how to get my, my, my high school daughter ready for the SAT. So you know what? I find somebody who knows what they're doing and, and I put her with that person because that person can help her with the SAT. I have a daughter that I don't know the first thing about setting in volleyball. I, I, I you know, I don't know what to do. So I send her to somebody who does and, and they try to help her in volleyball. I have a son. I don't know anything about self-defense. I know how to run, (laughs) but I don't know how to teach him how to defend himself. So I send him somewhere so that he can get prepared and, and know how to defend himself. I do that in those areas, but brothers and sisters, listen, this cannot be the case when it comes to our faith. God doesn't give us this option to send them somewhere else. You know, it has been said that faith is something that is caught, not taught. And if you and I as parents aren't living the Christian life out before our children, if we are not showing them the importance of our relationship with Jesus Christ, if we've handed that off, as it were, to somebody else, we are in sin and we need to repent of that and start doing what it is that God has called us to do. You see, your children, they need to see you living out the Christian faith before them on a daily basis. They need to watch you practically living out what it means to be a bright light in a dark world. As a parent, you have the greatest influence in the life of your child. You have the greatest influence in their lives. Whether you acknowledge it or not, and get this, hear this, parent. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are passing something on to them. What that is depends upon who it is you're living for. Whether or not you're truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you teaching your children how to be hot or lukewarm? Jesus doesn't like lukewarm. In Revelation 3.16, we're told that he's going to spit out lukewarm. 
Don't teach your children how to be lukewarm. Teach them how to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach your children how to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't teach them how to love the world and the things of the world. That comes naturally enough. Teach them how to love Jesus. Teach them how to walk with Jesus. Teach them how to fulfill the royal law of James 2.8. Teach them how to serve. Teach them how to love. Teach them how to die to themselves so that they might live for Jesus. As parents, you must not allow yourselves to fall into the trap of farming out your children to the professionals when it comes to matter of faith and godliness. You must actively engage your children and teach them the great truth of God's word, both in word and deed. You must make sure that your home is a testimony to his grace and to his love so that those who look on might be drawn to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they might give him glory. You see, the souls of your children are at stake, and each of you needs to be faithful to lead them back to the cross where they will see Jesus, and they will see what he has done, and they will be drawn to this merciful, loving, gracious Savior. This is a truth that you must not shrink back from. There is too much, parent, That is at stake. So cry out to God. Ask him to help you to reach your sons and your daughters with this glorious gospel. All right. So now that I've gotten off my little soapbox here, let me get back to what we're talking about. Let me talk about a a mindset that, you know, kind of what just kind of flows out of what I just said. And, And where a lot of people will take what I just said is they'll kind of take that and they'll just say, okay, that means now that I am it. I am the only one who's going to speak into my child's life. And some people get into a, a, a movement that I would, I would label, and I think they even label themselves, is the family integrated church movement. They develop this mindset that, you know what, I need to kind of bring my, my child into everything and I kind of need to kind of keep them with me continually and I, I can't let anybody else speak into their life because that is my responsibility and therefore they kind of shut out anything like Sunday school, youth ministry, anything that might in any way uh, allow somebody else to speak into that child's life. And, and while there are certain aspects of this movement that I can appreciate and applaud and say amen to, there are others that I find to be troublesome and really, in a lot of ways, unnecessarily divisive. My biggest issue with this movement is, is found, if you were to go onto the, their website, there's this website for the, the National Center for Family Integrated Churches, and I, and I got this information right off of the website, and I'm not going to get too much into it, but I just want you to kind of see uh, where we, we, what we got to guard against and, and what movements are out there, because there are some people that say, you know what, you shouldn't have any children's programming, you shouldn't have any youth ministry, you shouldn't have these things, and most of these people are connected with the Family Integrated Church Movement. So the issue, my biggest issue that I have with this movement is, is something that comes from their confessions, which specifically is Article 11, and uh, it basically states this. Just listen, and again, this is right off of their website. We affirm that there is no scriptural pattern for comprehensive age-segregated discipleship and that age-segregated practices are based on unbiblical, evolutionary, and secular thinking which have invaded the church. We deny, reject that corporate worship, discipleship, and evangelism should be systematically segregated by age and that it has been an effective method for making disciples. And then they go on and they list a bunch of verses. I think there's like seven or eight verses that they they list to kind of support that claim. Well, I, I'm just going to go through some of the verses that they, they list because, again, I, I like to investigate these things. And if Scripture clearly states that, you know, we're not to do something, then I want to try not to do it. But 
I want to take a look. And so I, I looked up some of their passages that they have there. Again, this impressive, impressive list to validate, you know, this claim that they're making. And, and this is some of the, you know, the passages that, that, I, that I saw. And, and these are things that I kind of just want us to quickly look at. Uh, the things that in their minds prove that there is no scriptural pattern for comprehensive age-segregated discipleship and that age-segregated practices are based on unbiblical, evolutionary, and secular thinking which have invaded the church. So again, here's their support for it. These are the Bible verses that, that validate that. First one is in Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 14. And it says this, it says, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord, your God, with the tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord, your God, blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where the Lord, your God, chooses to establish his name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall celebrate the feast of booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. Now, anybody see a problem as far as validating their claim? I mean, this took place during the Feast of Weeks, a a special celebration where the Israelites rejoiced over God's rich provision. It's not trying to establish a pattern. It's not trying to tell us how things should be set up. It's giving specific instructions as to what should what they should do, what the Israelites should be doing in this time. But they don't stop there. They go on to Joshua 8, 34 and 35. And they claim this. They say, Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Again, Clear-cut proof that this family-integrated model is biblical. But again, the problem is this took place right after the Israelites had conquered Ai. Another special event that included all of the people that brought everybody together. But you know what? Perhaps they just kind of got bogged down on some Old Testament passages. So surely their New Testament passages might help. So I went over to Acts 27. And this is another verse that they list to prove their claim that there is no scriptural pattern for comprehensive age-segregated discipleship and that age-segregated practices are based on unbiblical, evolutionary, and secular thinking which have invaded the church. This is another one of their proof verses, this one taken from the New Testament. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Well, that, surely, <laughs> seals the deal. I mean, if we had any doubt whatsoever with the Old Testament passages, I'm sure this New Testament passage just solidifies it in your mind that if we have any kind of programs that are offered to children or youth, we are in sin. We are in direct violation of the Scriptures. See, when we look at that particular passage in Acts, it doesn't offer us any insight into who that we consists of. So what does it really prove? You know, and herein lies the problem with some of the different models, brothers and sisters, that are out there. This is, this is where it, it gets difficult. You know, whenever you kind of advance something, sometimes people just latch onto it. You know, they take Scripture farther than Scripture takes itself. So let me just ask you, is it wrong for the people at a family-integrated church to not have Sunday school or to keep children of all ages in every aspect of the service? Would that be wrong for that church if they felt that's what they wanted to do? Would that be wrong for them to do that? Absolutely not. If they want to have their kids in there with them, praise God. Continue to, to take the training up of your children seriously. Nothing wrong with that. It is wrong, however, 
to say that churches that aren't following their model are in sin and have thus, thus bought into the philosophies, goals, and methods of this fallen world that these churches have succumbed to the adversary's deception, that's wrong. That's legalism. That's dangerous. And that's what we need to make sure we don't get sucked into. I mean, as I've already stated, I have no problem with acknowledging the fact that that parents are called to be the primary spiritual providers for their children. I am a champion of that of that cause because you know what? The scriptures clearly teach that. There is no question biblically that would have us say that parents aren't to be the primary spiritual providers for their children. However, this does not mean that if a parent allows another person in addition to them to speak into the life of their child, that they are in some way being derelict in their duty of training up their children and therefore are guilty of a heinous, terrible sin that comes right from Satan himself. I mean, I don't understand why a parent can't be the primary spiritual teacher in their child's life and yet still use other people and their giftedness to reinforce the truths that they are trying to pass along to their child. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't a person do both? Why can't a parent diligently teach up their, train up their child in the way he should go? Why can't a parent teach their child and take that on personally and make that their greatest goal to see their child come to know Jesus and yet still incorporate other people to speak into their child's life? Why can't that happen? Where biblically are we told not to do that? I mean, I I understand the inherent danger of a parent becoming lax in their spiritual training and thus delegating that responsibility to somebody else. But I also, brothers and sisters, I also see the divine beauty in the body of Christ working together to see a generation of children and youth to grow up to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that our goal? Isn't that what we want to see happen? It doesn't have to be one or the other. In fact, you're not going to hear me say, yeah, bring them. Don't worry about it. We've got them. Just drop them off. No, we are partnering. And Jason's the same way. We are partnering with you to see these generations growing up to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. And clearly there is a vast difference when we look at children specifically there's a vast difference between what you can effectively teach a two-year-old in comparison to a 10-year-old clearly a senior in high school is able to grasp far more than a sermon that a a little four-year-old boy that's looking like he's about ready to jump out of his skin can as a parent i am genuinely sincerely deeply thankful for the different people that have helped to reinforce the lessons that Christina and I have, have sought to teach our children at home. I am grateful for the, the many different individuals that have come alongside of my wife and I and have, and have spoken truth to our children. I am indebted to people that have impacted our children for good and helped them to see God more clearly with their age-appropriate lessons that they worked so diligently to prepare and to get ready. There's no violation, brothers and sisters, of God's command by teaching children God's word in a way that they can understand and seek to apply it to their lives. There is no sin in the using of spiritual gifts for the blessing and benefit of others in the body of Christ. So let's go back to the three elements that are truly to define the purpose of the church. If you remember, they were to exalt God, edify believers and evangelize the lost. And here at Calvary Bible Church, we seek to evaluate again every ministry to ensure that there that this is a comp, this is being accomplished at least in one of these things. That one of these things is being accomplished. God is being exalted, believers are being edified, 
the lost are being evangelized. This is the grid we put everything through. So when we consider the structure that we have here in place within our children's ministry, and, and again, this is going to spill over into the youth ministry, but I'm much more comfortable talking about the children's ministry because that's what I oversee. Um, we need to ask if, if what we are doing falls within the parameters of what the Word of God says we must do. Does the family integrated church rightly accuse us of abandoning the clear teaching of God's word for the sake of man-centered philosophies? Well, with the time that we have remaining, let us look at these three elements that I have given you to see if they are being addressed in our current structure. Let us begin with exalting God. It has been said that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever And this concept is to be the driving force behind everything that the church does. The purpose of any ministry should be to see that God gets the glory that he deserves. God and God alone is to receive the glory and and be exalted above all things. And we see this biblically, do we not? We see Psalm 148, 1 through 14. We see Matthew 5, 16. We see 1 Corinthians 10, 31. These all help us to see that God's glory is a big thing. He needs to be exalted. He needs to be glorified. And we have to be a people that constantly seek to bring that about in in our lives so that he gets the glory as he works in us. Another way, though, of expressing this exalting and this glorifying of God is to say say that it is the, the privilege and purpose of the Christian to worship God, to worship God. Now, much has been said and written about worship. John Piper defines worship as a a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. Robert Saucy defines it in a similar fashion. He says it means to attribute worth to an object. To worship God is thus to ascribe to him the supreme worth to which he alone is worthy. You see, true biblical worship is all about giving God the adoration and, and the praise that he alone deserves. And this can only happen in the life of a believer, can it not? We can only offer an acceptable worship, acceptable praise, if we are born again, if we have been brought into God's kingdom, if we are new creatures in Christ. So while I may not be able to tell you which children are exalting God, are worshiping God, I can assure you that God is being exalted in the way that his word is being taught, in the fact that his son is being lifted up. You see, children and youth are learning that they have been created by God and that they need to depend on him for everything. They are being exposed to the fact that they are sinners, that they have done wrong things and thus they are in need of a savior. They are being exposed to the truth that they need God's Holy Spirit working in them to make any headway in their battle against sin. And while they are learning these things at different levels and in different degrees, God is being exalted as his truth about him is being proclaimed. You see, the the Sunday school structure that is in place enables us to work with parents to help this next generation to give God the glory and the praise that is rightfully his from all, all of his creatures, including children, including our youth. Now, the next element that we're going to be looking at is edifying believers edifying believers. This is the process that helps and encourages the believer to to grow and to mature in his faith. The Bible stresses the, the sheer necessity of being around other believers for true edification to be taking place. That is why we are you and I are called to never forsake the gathering together of the saints, according to Hebrews 10.25. It is within this context of these gatherings that we are to encourage one another on to love and good deeds, according to Hebrews 10.24. And you know what? Every classroom has teachers that are believers and that can teach and model for the children and the youth what it is to be a follower of Christ. And this helps the children to realize that the body of Christ is much bigger than just our little family. It is much bigger than mom and dad. Try as I might, I am not going to properly represent all that Christianity can bring through me. I am too limited. I need others. And the body of Christ can can do just that. 
The body of Christ can expose our children and help them to see how big and how vast God is. How, how he, he, we don't all have to look the same. We don't all have to kind of have the same personalities. God can work and draw anybody to himself. And he can build that person and conform them more and more into the image of Christ. And again, that's going to look a little different in each of our lives. But God is the one that is working at that. And when we bring them into these different structures, they get a chance to see somebody other than just mom and dad. And they get a chance to see how God has worked in other people's lives. You know, the Apostle Paul knew that the edification of the saints was to be a high priority within the church. That is why he penned these words in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. He says this, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You see, the teachers in the Sunday school class, the leaders in the youth ministry, they're able to notice when a child is missing. And they're able to look to follow up with that child, to let them know that they were missed. They're also able to speak into that child's life as a believer that is seeking to help that child to grow. The teacher, the the leader, is also able to pray specifically for that child as a result of, of the relationships that are formed, the connections that are established. And again, these are believers we're not asking you to bring your child and drop them off on the corner to some stranger. We're asking you to bring them in to your brothers and sisters and to let your brothers and sisters minister alongside of you so that your children can come to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. And then the last element that we're going to be looking at is the evangelizing the lost. Just as worship and edification are means in which God receives glory, evangelism is yet another One of my favorite professors in seminary was Pastor Alex Montoya, and he passionately has a lot to say about evangelism, but he says this. He says, the church has a mission. The church has a mission to reach the world with the gospel, to announce to every creature that Christ has made redemption through his blood, and that by repentance and faith, each can receive the remission of sins and entrance into the kingdom of God. You see, the Bible calls us to be a group of people that evangelize. This great commission is to be taken seriously by everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Montoya views the basis of this commission in three parts. He says, number one, it is an authoritative commission. Jesus Christ himself commanded that his disciples make disciples. And we see this in Matthew 28, 19. It is not something that he requests. It is not something that he, he, he begs us to do. It's something that he commands us to do. And when the one who holds all things together commands you to do something, we would be wise to follow what he calls us to do. He calls us to make disciples, to reach the lost, to go out and reach the lost. Pastor Montoya goes on to say it's an all-inclusive commission. This commission is to make its disciples into into something that is extended to everyone. We are not only to share the gospel with those whom we feel like it, but we are to share it with all the nations. Get this. This means that regardless of race, gender, or age, we are to proclaim the glorious truth that Jesus Christ came into this world, that he died for sinners, that he was buried that he was that he was hung on a cross he was buried in a tomb and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures we are told to proclaim that he is coming back maybe now how glorious would that be he's coming back we need to be reaching all people regardless of race gender or age we need to be reaching all people with this glorious news that God has made a way for their sins to be forgiven. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. We need to get that out, regardless of what people may think about us. We need to be concerned about what God calls us to do. And then Pastor Montoya goes on and tells us, thirdly, that this is an active commission, an active commission. There is nothing passive about the commission to make disciples. 
We are given the charge to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. These two elements naturally flow out of the making of disciples because the first identifies the new convert into the body of Christ and the second, well, the second grows them in the knowledge and understanding of God's word. Our teachers, our leaders are faithful to proclaim the gospel week after week because they realize that it is the power of God for salvation. The church needs to ensure that it remains faithful to fulfill its purpose in every area. Far too many churches are dropping the ball when it comes to effectively ministering to parents and their children. I get that. But parents have always been the ones exhorted to train up their children in the way that they should go. The church needs to come alongside of you, parents. We need to support you and encourage you to fulfill this God-given responsibility. The church needs to be partnering with parents to help their children to come to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. You see, too many churches have created an atmosphere where the duties of training up the child has been delegated to the church or anyone else who's willing to take that on. But we need to come alongside and we need to remind parents, this is your responsibility. We're here to support and help you. And that is exactly what we are here to do, to come alongside of you and to help you to fulfill what God has called you to do. And the programs that we have, our Sunday school, our youth ministries, these are all here to help you and to come alongside of you to reach your child with the gospel. We do Sunday school and children's church and the children's ministry so that we can exalt God, so that we can edify believers, and so that we can evangelize the lost. This is the heartbeat behind all that we do. And this must be the thing that drives everything that we do. So hopefully this morning you've kind of gotten a glimpse as to why we have the structure set up the way that we have it. I, I pray that you see the, the value in it. I, I pray that you see the, the biblical guidance and direction that has brought us to where we're at. I pray that you will be on guard against any of the, the false teachings and false way of thinking about things, how it might uh, creep in if we're not careful. But I pray that you were challenged and encouraged that Calvary Bible Church is highly committed to making sure that the programs and the things that we offer are going to exalt God and are going to edify believers and are going to evangelize the lost. That is what we want to do. And our children's and youth ministry fall into that. Every ministry needs to fall into that. And to the degree that we can do that, we may look different from another church. And another church may look entirely different from us. And that's okay. Right? As long as God is being exalted in a church... As, wrong, as long as uh, believers are being edified in the church and as long as the lost are being evangelized in the church, we can look radically different. But as long as we've got those things that unite us and bring us together, God can be exalted in this church, can have an impact in this lost and dying world. Amen? All right, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go do some, uh, some picnicking. So let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer and then we will get you guys out of here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you are a good God. We thank you for your word and just for the clarity that it gives us. I pray, Father, that you were honored this morning. Pray that the message was clear and that uh, everybody has a better understanding of, of how we move forward in, in all that we do, Lord. May you help us to be a body of believers that truly encourage one another. And Lord, we hold our time up to you as we get ready to go and, and picnic together. Lord, may you just give us a sweet time of fellowship. And may you help none of us to forsake that, but really, Lord, just help us all to come out, to get out of our comfort zones and to go and to hang out with one another and to just enjoy proclaiming what a great and wonderful God you are to one another. Lord, bless our time. We thank you for this morning and we ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.